Hey everyone, first off, we at the Family Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Welcome to the Fermi Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from our bedrooms, uh, no, coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, sort of. I am your Fermi Strange today, Simon Theobald, together with my fellow Fermi Strangers, Alex DeLoyer. Hello. Dr. Jodie Lee Trembath. Hi, Simon. And Dr. Yasmin Mashabash. Hey. Uh, Yasmin is coming to us from Alice Springs in the centre of Australia. She's a senior lecturer in anthropology at the Australian National University in the School of Archaeology and Anthropology. Her research speciality is in themes of monsters, boredom, sleep and death amongst Central Australian communities, particularly in the remote Indigenous settlement of Yundamu. Thanks for being with us, Yaz. Thanks for having me. And can I just say what are from Mbandwa, which is basically acknowledging the Aranda people on whose land I am and I'm speaking. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange chats on Facebook and provide us with some valuable insight on today's episode. So Alex, what are you thinking about this week? I've continued to think about a little discussion about individualism and the construction of the individual within society. Within the last panel, I mentioned an article by Sabah Mahmood. It's a really excellent piece looking at docility in Egypt, particularly amongst a group of young women who are aiming to become particularly pious. Now, the piece goes on to be a bit of a critique of liberal feminism and liberalism more generally. But what I'd particularly like to talk about is her idea of to what extent can we really think of the individual as existing before society. In that, she says that a lot of people talk about, particularly in situations where somebody seems to work towards their own oppression, we often talk about things like false consciousness or internalization of oppressive norms, etc., etc. However, that all presumes that you are an individual separate from society, that you have somehow real interests that are apart from the ones that you sort of think you have through society. She critiques that and says, well, maybe we don't. Maybe we are constructed through society. Do you guys think that's sort of located within the Western tradition that we are always individuals before society? And two, can we escape that to truly see it any other way in other societies? Can I come in here from left field? I had this moment in my tutes last week and the lecture was about health and health-related policies in Indigenous Australia. And one of the readings was by Daniela Heil, and it was about Aboriginal conceptions of the body, and especially the body in medical care, and the ways in which the Western medical system relates to the body, which is very different. And what struck me during one of the discussions in the Tutes was how this whole idea of the individual that everyone, like, you know, in my two kind of things, everyone thinks they are one, um, how that that 
is just such a red herring or like a chimera that doesn't actually exist. And the way we ended up relating it to COVID was when um, people refer to, you know, those news where they speak about people dying in hospital without being able to have their relatives there. Or, you know, even if they have their relatives there, they can't touch, but they have to wear gloves. And the absolute deep horror that is associated with that. So if you really were an individual, that wouldn't matter. But, you know, you are much more than that and you are connected in even very embodied ways to others, which is what the shock about people dying without their family and without touching actually tells us that, you know, we are, even though, you know, very deeply rooted in Western and, you know, deeply wedded to the notion that we all are individuals, we are so much more than individuals and so much less than individuals. And I think even even at a very mundane level, the way that groupthink occurs during research we have the capacity to this is very technical term vibe off others (laughs) and that wouldn't be possible if we were purely in our own bubble but also we're never just in our own bubble I mean you know anytime you use your phone and your phone goes out and represents you in the world and your online persona goes out and represents you in the world you are becoming multiples. And so although that's not so much about the individual in and of itself, it does speak to porous boundaries of where the self ends and begins. I wanted to share another thing that has occurred to me during this semester teaching. And and that, I, I think I might even answer the, or not answer, it provides an idea. <laughs> about it. Flat out. Here's the answer, answer to all your questions. That's it. <laughs> got it. I got it, Alex. comes from teaching. (laughs) Go teach more, get more answers. Maybe an angle. It gives you one angle to look at this in a productive way. And that is what I'm talking about is the chicken and egg, you know, which one comes first. And I've been thinking a lot teaching this unit and, you know, teaching this unit straight after the fires and then at the beginning and through COVID. I've been thinking a lot about metaphors, words or even grammar that we use without thinking that they're metaphors, but that actually say something about how we think about the world. And to give you and one metaphor that they talk about a lot is the container metaphor. So in English, for example, the word in. So I am in the garden, I'm in my body, I'm in my house, makes the garden, the body and the house a container. And they say that we think in container metaphors a lot. And so a lot of actually almost all the strategies of dealing with COVID are about containment. They're about closing borders, putting people into homes. And so one thing that we've been talking about is how containment is at the moment seems to be the metaphor that kind of describes public thought. And if you think that further through, then you go like, if we're really heavily into containment, maybe it's that notion of containment that even makes us think we are an individual because we bring ourselves back into the body, which makes us like a single unit rather than a connected thing. That makes a lot of sense to me because I think we do. I know I think of my body as a as a container that holds the essence of me. When I actually think about my consciousness, I, I imagine it as 
bigger than my skin. But if I don't think about it, if I just sort of allow myself to use society's heuristics, then then I definitely assume that my entire consciousness exists within my skin. I would love to keep talking about this, but unfortunately we have to move on. Jody, what have you been thinking about this week? I have been thinking about fandom. I watched this amazing documentary yesterday about Twilight fans, Twihards, and the, the premise of this documentary was that when the author of Twilight, Stephanie Meyer, was writing her book, she basically Googled where's the wettest place in America and found this little town called Forks and based her entire series in this little town, having never been there. So there's this whole amazing culture in this town around these books and movies. But one of the people who was interviewed, and she's one of the cosplayers in this community, and one of the comments that she made really sparked my interest, and I've got it here for you. So she said, we have a tendency as a society to absolutely hate, revile, and treat with vitriol anything that has to do with teenage girls. We hate their music, we hate their icons, we hate their fashion, we hate their behavior, we hate everything about them. And I was really struck by that because fandom is not just teenage girls, but quite often the fandoms that are related to teenage girls really do cop it, particularly on the internet. And one of the the examples they gave was about a Twilight convention where a young woman was hit by a car deliberately and the internet was like, yeah, that's fair, one less Twihard in the world. There's something going on there about what women love and why that isn't socially acceptable, but it's okay for men to obsess about things. I just, I cannot imagine somebody getting mown down at a Star Wars convention. So I guess that's my question to you. Like, what is going on there? This is absolutely gendered, but I think we can do more than just it's despised because it's teenage girls, whereas like teenage male fandoms are totally okay because they're not but i think the key point that you pointed out was that it was somehow okay that they were a victim of violence Mm. and i think that's a really insightful thing like how are these boundaries kind of policed by i don't know by who i want to say wider society but i can't imagine okay for all i'm sure the internet was a real about it i can't believe that many people and maybe I'm too optimistic, but I can't believe that many people actually approve of the killing of someone because they like Twilight. No, although that does seem to be a fairly common trend on the internet with, I mean, trolling does tend to involve Mm -hmm. a lot of threats of violence, right? Mm -hmm. And women are absolutely more like the victim of that than anyone else, like two to three times at least. And I think that, I don't have an answer to it, but I think that different policing is interesting i'm wondering how much of this how much of this is just gendered as in there's so much overlap between the story you just told and the ways in which um say the australian media reports or doesn't report about women killed at home through domestic violence like there isn't really a big difference there so my question then is is this about young girls and do they kind of experience the same kind of online violence that, you know, murdered women, you know, I don't mean the murdering, I mean the media about them experience, or is it about Twilight? Like, see, if these girls weren't Twilight fans but were 
racing fans, would that make any difference? Like, is it the Twilight business that makes them such perfect victims? Or is it the fact that, you know, they attract all this aggression that they're girls? If this was a situation where we were talking about female teenage fans of soccer, would we expect the same kind of disdain for starters and then taking that a step up from disdain would we expect to see the same vitriol and then a step up from that would we expect to see the same violence i think at the violence level women women particularly but anybody who is vulnerable is a target for violent acts and i think we see that all over the place i was thinking i wonder if it's to do with like fandoms that are kind of out there to some extent it's like no, 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 no. Like public and in your face somewhat. Oh. Like you couldn't miss Twilight. Whereas like, you know, I'm a fair nerd. And certainly as a teenage guy, I kept a lot of my hobbies. Not secret, but I didn't wear them on my chest. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, like everyone knew I sort of played computer games. I like the odd webcomic and things. I've owned t-shirts, but I always pick t-shirts that are like, it's. if you know the webcomic, you'll know the t-shirt. If you won't, you'll just think it's a t-shirt. If you know the game, you'll know the t-shirt if you don't. And I'm pretty fastidious about that. That's interesting. So social psychologists who write about fandom talk about the element of shame and how it's actually critical to the the fandom experience that you have that shame and that you are secretive to some degree about it. I, we could keep going on this conversation forever, but we have to move on to other deviant things. <laughs> um So to bring the conversation back to me, this week I am thinking about whiteness. I'm thinking about it because it's something that one of our listeners said on the Facebook chats group that we have. And it got me thinking about what we consider the limits of whiteness and what constitutes whiteness. There's an enormous body of like research to you know, racial studies in the United States. And so um, I step with trepidation into a field that's already huge. But what do you guys think whiteness is? And where do we draw the limitations of what constitute whiteness? So I wrote about this in my thesis. I, I had a chapter on this, having been in a, an international university in Vietnam where a lot of the academics were white and most of the students and administrative staff were Vietnamese. And so I think whiteness is a resource. I think it's a form of capital that can be deployed and that not being ethno-racially determined as white doesn't necessarily mean that you can't deploy whiteness. For example, where a particular uh, academic manager sent one of his staff to Hanoi to do a presentation on his behalf because he was, and he was a black African man, and so he said, I'm making a, a pragmatic decision on behalf of the program. The message will be heard better if it's coming from a white man. So I'm sending you to Hanoi to do this presentation instead of me. So I I think that whiteness is something that can be deployed and the more features that you have about you that let others believe you to have that white capital, the better you are placed to be able to deploy those resources. I've got issues with the racial background of the term and the racial thinking that we employ when we use the term when I really think what we're talking about is privilege 
or to give you another example so you know i'm half german i've got another half german friend i look more german than she does her skin is a lot darker my name is a lot less german than hers and so basically every time we had to engage with a particular federal department if i go in in person i get treated really nicely if she goes in in person she doesn't if i ring them up on the phone i don't get treated nicely if she rings them up on the phone she does when people can see me and hear me i have appeal white yes and privileged and i get what i want straight away if they identify me with my name first than not and vice versa so i always thought that was really interesting and it kind of shows you that in in people's minds ethnicity and race is all tied up with these notions of privilege but i think it's important to not reduce privilege to whiteness following on from that like it's amazing how contextual it is this is a study that's been replicated around the world where they send out a bunch of cvs two jobs being advertised and they swapped the names on the CV, right? And they did this one in Australia with, it was an Anglo name, there was an Italian name, Middle Eastern name, and I want to say Vietnamese, but I'm not 100% sure. As per a lot of the world, pretty much always it was the Anglo name that got the most responses, etc., etc. But nevertheless, it did show that, like, it is so massively contextual. And I think that is also a really interesting factor in all this, in the way these things have shifted. Thanks, guys. I think you've wrapped up the issue for me. Um, shall we move on to the next topic Yaz what are you thinking about this week I got an invitation to contribute to a really cool little thing dealing with COVID and I've been thinking about that a lot it's an invitation I got from an anthropologist whom I don't actually know who contacted lots of anthropologists she likes based on their writing and what she asked us all to do is whether we're interested in participating in a project that's called Decameron Relived. And so basically she asked each of us to tell a story from the field, about the field, anything to do with the field. And so I've been thinking about that so much because on the one hand, that was like the most exciting invitation to write something that I've had in a very long time. On the other hand, I realized that I'm struggling with two things there and I actually thought it'd be interesting to talk about them. One is, you know, if someone asks you to talk about the field with a word limit and one story that you share in exactly that kind of context, like what kind of story do you take? Like, you know, this is 10 different anthropologists who talk about 10 different fields. So, you know, take one of those, I look ridiculous in the field, or this was super dangerous, or do you actually talk about demand sharing? Like, you know, what do you even take? It is so huge. Like, you know, just choosing is impossible almost. And then the other thing that I started struggling with was because one of the suggestions was to take something like a myth or something else from the field and retell it from a different position so you know take a myth and don't tell it the way that you know the person that you heard it from around the fire told it but from the perspective of the monster in the myth or whatever and the problem i had with that is working in indigenous australia it's hard enough to talk about stories that don't belong to me but belong to other people 
but to actually appropriate a story and retell it from a different perspective is just, I can't do it. You know, it's, it's not possible. And so that was kind of the dilemma that I found myself in. And I thought, I'll just ask you, one is what story would you tell? The other one is what would make it hard? What I would find difficult is the idea of trying to boil down my experiences to a single vignette that captured both the richness of the lives of my interlocutors and the stories that they told me about their lives versus my own personal experience of fieldwork. Yeah, and And you get into a real awful dilemma about voice and the presence of yourself in your ethnography. I'm trying to work this out at the moment, actually. So I am in the process of trying to turn my thesis into a book. I've decided not to release that through an academic publisher. I'm going to go through a, well, I'm going to try to pitch it to a probably somewhere like Penguin. And I've been advised in that process to put myself into the story much more than my thesis currently has. And I think I'm in there a lot anyway, like I, but I'm, I'm being asked to put more in for that style. And it's a dilemma because you don't want it to become the Jody show. I went to a place where people were having important experiences that I want to share and, and, and they wanted me to share. Like, But then if it becomes about me, then what's the point in that? Mm. But if it doesn't become about me, then it doesn't get on a shelf. But I think if I'd been asked to do a process like that, I'd probably be selfish and pick one that I enjoyed writing about. What about you, Alex? I always run into the dilemma of, to some extent, I guess this is interesting because it's about the field, not necessarily about your research, is the way at least it's sort of been framed, right? Because as somebody who studies bureaucracy, I didn't have a lot of really fun stories. Even within bureaucracy, it was an oddly non-conflictual thing that I watched. I was like gunning for just a good argument or something, but everyone was really nice to each other the whole time, which was like (laughs) lovely. (laughs) But it also means a lot of my stories, the, the, the fun things, when I say it has very little to do with what I study, I mean really little to do with what I study. It was the few funny ones tend to be us making like, I don't know, bread, which was fun and cool. And like, I'm sure I could shoehorn it into bureaucracy if I really tried, but it would be shoehorning it in. So what did you do? Yes. Well, I think the first thing I realized was, and, and again, that was a good realization, is that I could not write something that did not have me in it because through that I realized that the reason I am in my ethnography so often, and I know myself because I always go like, hey, look, there she is again. I always think I am like a little bit like Jodie. I always think I am in there too much. But then I realized the reason I am in there is that that is the only way I can not appropriate and not mm. making it, you know, on behalf of Walpray people or speaking for Walpray people. That way it's me going, this is my my experience. And it, that's the only authority that I have. And so mm. I constantly have to put myself in there. And it was a really good realization, like when they went like, just, you know, write the story. And I'm like, I got to be in this story too. And then I thought about that a lot. What I did was, yeah, I kind of, went, okay, so I can't just take one story and I have to be in there. And then I've turned everything into a story, including myself. 
So I actually start with a story about myself. And then from there, I tell like lots of different stories. And the part of the story about myself is about, you know, growing up in Germany and Jordan. It's only a sentence, but it kind of goes like, you know, there's the Brothers Grimm and then there's a thousand and one nights. And then I actually start telling that they all, each paragraph is a different story telling them like a thousand and one nights but they are about yundamu and things and they're different types of things that actually happened and things that are myth and things that are a historical thing and they kind of all tie together and then that you know then there's a bang at the end that i won't tell you about but it was a really interesting thing to kind of go like no nah, i need to be there but i can be a story too that's all we have time for today i want to thank alex deloyer thank you Jodalee Trembaugh. Thanks, Simon. And Yasmin Mashabash. Pleasure. And me, of course, I have to thank myself, your host, Simon Theobald. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Femme Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fong. You can subscribe to The Femme Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is just another fun podcast not ours though. You can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at TFS Tweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next time keep talking strange. <laughs>